0: bonus episode <laughs> oh boy a free bonus episode must mean one thing it's interview time it's been a while right good times yeah it has been a little while yeah and we're all since is that uh heather dobson heather dobson i think was the last one we did and that was months ago memoirs
1: of a future ghost
0: yep I'm sitting in my dining room right now looking up at my ceiling, and there is a giant spider crawling across my ceiling.
1: I hope it falls in your mouth. Well, it's not over <laughs>
0: me, but what an odd thing to wish upon someone, Dave. Goddamn, pal. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, we have a, a pretty exciting and inter, uh, interview today and uh, a bonus show we're, we're really stoked about, and this was kind of a three-man teamwork effort to get this thing going, wasn't it? Round of applause. Yeah. yeah round of applause for us dave you found uh mr thibodeau on social media i reached out and sent him a message and then ian took it from there and set up a a dynamite conversation with him.
2: yeah and this one was i was so i was super nervous going into it because of because of his story you know like he's a survivor stuff like that right and for people who
0: who don't know? We should probably set that up real quick first. Uh, David Thibodeau is a survivor of Waco. If you watch the Waco miniseries on Netflix, he was played by uh, Rory Calkin, uh, Macaulay Calkin's brother. So that's the uh, the guy that we are having or Ian had the conversation with today. But go ahead, Ian. Sorry. Poor
2: Rory. I bet his bio like that always says Macaulay Calkin's
0: brother. Yeah, must be terrible. I
2: Poor didn't guy. know that Whoa. Macaulay Calkin had a brother. And as I was watching that <laughs> show, I was like. Man, this dude really, really looks like Macaulay Culkin.
0: <laughs> <laughs> like, that's what weird. His name, does... his last name's Culkin too. <laughs> what are the odds of that? What else is Dave? Do you know of anything else that Rory's in, offhand or no? He
2: was. Uh, oh, I... He played Euronymous
1: uh, in the in the uh, Mayhem movie. Oh yeah, okay. yeah. And I uh, I saw him in a play on Broadway a couple years ago. It was pretty
0: good. Oh, that's right. You mentioned that. Yeah.
1: Oh no, that was Kieran. Never mind.
0: Sorry, uh, other Kalkins. There's so many Kalkin so brothers. So many Kalkin brothers out there. Lots of Kalkins. Yeah. So anyway, so we reached out to him on, uh, we sent him a message and he messaged us back and, with his email and said to get in touch with him. And then Ian, you kind of picked it up from there.
2: Yeah, and I, w- I was really nervous to talk to him because he is a survivor. It's a really intense story that he, you know, I mean, he lived all that, that craziness. And the night we were supposed to do the interview, he called me and we talked for a while. And it really, like, it eased my nerves a lot from just kind of bullshitting with him. And then, uh, you know, we decided not to do the interview that night because he was having a tough day and picked it up the next day. And I'll tell you what, man, we were just talking. Like, this is not even really an interview. This is just a straight-up raw conversation that, that he and I had because within the first five minutes of us just kind of talking, he starts going right into right into Waco stuff. Gary Nesner from the FBI, Timothy McVeigh. I mean, he he answers like my last three questions in the first five minutes. <laughs> You're like, uh, I don't know what else
0: to ask you, pal. Yeah. At one point, he kind of flips the script and he starts interviewing you. He's like asking you questions.
2: I know I got one one of my official written down questions in, and he never answered it. He flipped it on me and asked me my opinion on it. <laughs> so, and then it just and then it just went from there and. It, it it really was. It was just like a. It was just a conversation with him about Waco and a lot of good
0: information in yeah. there. From he's, him. he's yeah. a really smart guy with a lot of uh, good insight to all of this. And and it's just it was. It's such a fun conversation to listen to. Like I I wish I got to just go hang out with him and have some beers and listen to him tell some stories and just you know pontificate about his thoughts on things because he seems like Dave said he's really smart and just seems like a fun guy to hang out with. Yeah, for sure. So. um yeah, so it's it's a great conversation, and we figured it'd be a good follow up to the uh, the Waco series, just to drop kind of as a bonus here in the middle of our, what are we calling this? Our month on domestic terrorism, is that what this uh, this is uh, shaping up to be? Yeah. To domestic <laughs> domestic the month leading <laughs> to domestic terrorism. <laughs> yeah. Um, so really quick, just a few plugs uh, for uh, for. Uh, Tibbs, uh, WacoSurvivors.com, I believe, is the site that he runs and or has a lot of input in, uh, a lot of good information there, WacoSurvivors.com. That's also where you can buy his book, uh, where every, every book purchased, he does personally sign. So you can get a signed copy of his book, which is called Waco, A survivor Story. And it was him and Gary Nestor's books. Gary Nestor is the FBI negotiator. It was Tibbs and Gary Nestor's books. Um, that inspired the Waco series. So that book is available, I believe, online, but if you want to get it at, uh, anywhere online, but if you want to get it uh, straight from him and have it signed, wacosurvivors.com. And again, the book is Waco, A Survivor's Story. So I think that about covers it. You guys got anything else you want to add uh, before we jump into this conversation? Nope. Uh, no, Just
2: I'd like to get beers with Tibbs one time. I think it'd be great. Yeah.
0: yeah. Hey, as soon as we have a live show down in Texas, I think that should be our first guest if he's willing to do it. Absolutely, That'd be a great yeah. time, in an informative show. So, all right, well, here's an hour of Ian and Tibbs. Hope you guys enjoy, and we'll see you on Sunday. Cheers.
1: What do you usually do on this podcast? What's your what's your what's your kind of thing you are usually uh, you know uh, telling people about?
0: So,
2: usually when like for our podcast, we usually do. Uh, I actually started this wanting to do uh, aliens for the most part, and uh, yeah. like cults and stuff, and. True crime, all that, it obviously interests me, but aliens are my big thing. And then as we started doing this and then started making money, uh, we realized that people don't really want to hear about the aliens too much. Uh, and come, like, to get ads and downloads, people want to hear about the more true crime stuff. So we kind of switched it to more true crime, things like that. And then for Patreon, then I get to do my aliens because we have more control over that. Yeah. See,
1: Patreon, that's something I'm going to start looking into, I mean. Like I told you, I think I would do with a podcast. And it's just, it's, it's even in starting, and I mean, I'm an older guy now, dude. So I try to, I think I told you the story. I got two mics, and one mic's working just fine. <laughs> and I'm using GarageBand. <laughs> I can't seem to get the other mics to work. So if I were to have an in-house interview, I, I literally couldn't do it. And it's, it's just, it's weird because, you know, I've been around mics, and I've been around, you know, music and setting up boards and stuff my whole life, being a drummer in bands, Right. So, the fact that I can't seem to make this work is beyond frustrating for me.
2: I sent you that link with the, uh, you got to make an aggregate device for uh, for one of the mics. I did all that. Oh, you did? That's Damn. I've done all
1: that. Yeah, the information you sent me is what I've been spending hours on watching YouTube videos and just doing exactly what they say, and there's still an issue. And I just, you know, I think I got to get another cord that plugs directly into a USB device right. and not the 16 inch uh mic, uh I don't know how to explain sixteen inch jack. Yeah, yeah. Which is the real small super small jack. So I'm trying to do both and I think that's the issue, but I don't know. I know it's not the cord, I know it's not the mic. So it's something internal and I just uh like I said, I was considering maybe especially with the court getting doing the Zoom platform and just doing a you know interview with people.
2: Yeah, Zoom is uh, uh Zoom's great for that.
1: Yeah, yeah. So and it may happen. I'm talking with a buddy of mine with Thinking about something that has to do, I'm really upset with the militarization of law enforcement. That's kind of becoming my focus. Every time someone sends me a video of a cop shooting a guy with his hands up, it just makes me crazy. Because these people to protect and serve. And I have a feeling that I'm going to have a, a shorter lifespan if I, <laughs> if I pursue the savages. But I, I feel very passionate about it. It's what I feel passionate about. The fact that some of the bad is coming to kill you and there's not a damn thing you can do about it, I just think it's ridiculous. It's un American, is what it is. Yeah. The fact, long, you know, I mean, a good, we're, we're in the days when a good cop knocks on your door. You know, they, they say those days are gone. Well, I, I don't see why it should be. A cop should be part of the community and they should understand the community. And they should care about their community to protect and serve. We pay them, the taxpayers pay them. So when you see, I don't know, man, it's just, I saw a video yesterday some. Of a of a African American individual running toward a cop with his hands up, yeah, he probably should have been running toward the cop, but he had his hands up, and the cop unleashed his entire magazine into this kid. And I'm just like, dude, one shot, he could have been down. He's obviously unarmed with his hands up, so it was just, you know, it's like if you watch, I was watching Murder in Front of Me, and. And I know that there's 90, 90% chance that that cop's going to go through the system and that the jury of his so-called peers are going to exonerate him because he's in law enforcement.
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure.
1: That's the problem with, that's, that's the problem with Waco. Sorry to interrupt. What were you saying, my friend?
2: No, I was just going to say that's like because we did Ruby Ridge two weeks ago and now we're doing Waco. And I, that's a huge theme of what we're talking about right now is this militarization of law enforcement and kind of – like an excuse to play Army, almost.
1: No, absolutely. You know, with Waco, the big litigating factor to me that remains and causes me and other people to be angry about it is the lack of justice. They tried to go after the Davidians. Right. The jury acquitted every all of all of the people of conspiracy to commit murder. Some of them were found guilty of a lesser charge than the jury thought would be time served for what they've already done while they were waiting for trial. And the judge gave him 40 years on this lesser violation. Uh, that, that's not what the jury had intended at all. Had to take it to the Supreme Court for finally the guys to be let out of jail. So not only was there a miscarriage justice there, but the fact that no government agency, no government officials who made the decision to go forward with, with this insane raid have been held accountable. Not only have they not been held accountable, they've been given raises, promotions, they get their pensions, they get their retirement, and... Um, no criminal actions whatsoever. Okay, so what's the message we're sending here? If you work for the government, you can do whatever you want, and it's just going to be fine. What other job can you go in and screw up and lie to your boss on a daily basis, the bosses of the American people, lie to your bosses on a daily basis and, and continue to have your job? I can't think of one, my friend. I can't think of one job out there that would allow that to happen other than being a federal law enforcement official. No, you're to so, you're wrong. And here's the problem. Here's where, you know, it's extremely frustrating. When there is no justice, when the system is so corrupt that it will not go after the murderers in its own system, then you get a populace that remains angry. And then two years after, you get someone like Timothy McVeigh who blows up the Oklahoma City building, the Oklahoma City bombing of of the federal facility where all those children died. No one was more horrified with that than the people of El Carmel, the people that had survived and lived through all the hell that we lived through. So um, that's what that's that's what you get though when you don't check your own people and have some kind of semblance of of liberty of righteousness of justice. Justice is the big. It's the lack of justice that causes people to remain angry. So when a cop kills a black kid in the inner city, and the videotape comes out, you know the cop says, "No, no, you know he was he had a gun." And the videotape comes out when the kid's got his hands up, and that kid is now dead. Okay. Uh, and that a jury of his so-called peers uh, justifies it and say, uh, you know, he was within his rights to kill the guy and nothing happens to the cop. what happens? The people in the industry go crazy, and rightly they should. It's, 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 it's sanctified murder of the state. Listen, change it. Stop making people pissed off and do stupid things and get in confrontations with law enforcement. Fix it. Fix the system. Do something about it. You people in power in your cities and your states. Go after the murderers. Seriously, stop it. Educate your police forces that they're there to protect and serve and do the right thing. Have the body cameras, you know. And listen, it, if cop's doing his job, there should be no reason for the, the, a body camera to malfunction. There should be no reason for kids to be killed needlessly. So comply or die seems to be the message that they're sending. Comply or die. Reminds me of Robocop. Yeah. <laughs> you have 15 seconds to comply. You have 10 seconds to comply and you're complying and the thing's malfunctioning and next thing you know, you're dead.
2: Yeah, And there's, there's a whole, uh, I think part of the problem, at least the way, the way that I look at it with that is that there's, there's obviously some, there's a lot of good cops, but there's a, there's a major yeah. issue in just protecting themselves, you know, protecting their, their fellow police officers, no matter what happened in the situation.
1: Yeah. It, it's the thin blue line, and that's another problem, a serious problem that has been forever. Uh, cops are a member of a brotherhood, and I understand that. They are putting their lives on the line. I totally, totally understand that. But, again, if you're a cop and you've taken a pledge to the Constitution, you've taken a pledge to serve your community, then by covering up another cop's ill deed, is you're, you're doing no good whatsoever for the community. You're doing no good for the oath you've taken. You've actually gone against the oath you've taken to serve the public. And you're you're now in you're now in apostasy, if you will. I mean, yeah, you know, apostasy. is probably the, the wrong word, but you're well. You know, you're committing crime. Yeah. Okay, you're covering up for, for a fellow man in blue, and that's you know, like I said, I understand that. But look at Gary Nesner. <clears throat> Let's take him as an example. You know, the FBI negotiator who who's, whose other book was was the basis for the the Waco six part series. My book, is Gary Nesner. Gary Nezzer has not made a lot of friends and law enforcement because of what he said, but he told the truth. He, you know, believed that he believed that David Kresh was wrong, that David Kresh was was culpable. But he also believed that a lot of mistakes were made internally, and that people were coming out, more people would have come out, maybe everyone would have come out had they heeded what he was saying to them instead of gone in and taking the military the militaristic approach. So, what's my point? My point is that there's an example. Of an FBI, someone on the inside, all right, someone who's supposed to be the good guy that actually has done the right thing, despite the fact that a lot of his fellow uh, agents are probably very upset with him. So it's it's about honesty. Listen, we're going to live this life, and then after it's going to go very quickly, and we're going to die. <laughs> we're all going to die. No one gets away with it, right? right. No one's going to survive this. So what do you want your legacy to be? You know what? What do you want to stand before the Creator or God or whatever you want to call uh, eternity? Mm-hmm. Once we once we get rid of this mortal coil, you want to say that oh yeah, I lied and covered up for my friends, and I was you know um, you know basically misled the public, or do you want to say no? I was honest. I did the best, and I screwed up, but I did the best of my ability to to do the job and make sure that you know I wasn't trying to pull the wool over people's eyes. You know, I think that it should be clear. <laughs> The right choice, and people know it. And there are some people out there. A lot of them, sociopaths, that are in government. They don't have any feelings or empathy. They don't give a crap, dude. They do not care. You can be the most feeling person in the world, watch the Waco six part series, and be like, "Oh my god, those kids!" i yeah, That's fine. I, you know, I appreciate empathy because I am a feeling person too, and I get it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But you got to understand, there's people in this world that do not care. They feel no empathy. They don't care. <laughs> Those are the people that tend to go into, you know, positions of power. There's a lot of them. There's more than more than you might think. And so, wow, you know, that, let's think of a judge without empathy. Let's think of a cop that has firearms and is between the law and he, and between you and and his perception of the law without empathy. Oh my God, dude, that's just it's, that's that's horrendous. That's what's happening here. I look at a cop shooting a kid with his hands up, and I'm like, I get angry. I'm like, how can you even do it? I have to stop and say, okay, you know, human nature. There are people that do not care. And sometimes they have a badge with a gun. Now listen, man, I'm not trying to come down on law enforcement. I know it sounds like it. I just want the system to do the right thing. I want people to do the right thing. That's it. If cops did the right thing, guess what? People would be angry.
2: I think on your hand it's probably it's a really unique situation because you were part of like the biggest, you know, injustice involved in law enforcement in this country. I mean, at least one that is, uh, very popular in everybody's minds and it was a huge tragedy. So I think it's a, you know, it's very unique in your position.
1: Yeah.
2: During well, that, you, you yeah. hit on like three or four of my questions in that.
1: <laughs> uh, so, I tend to do that when I get an tangent.
2: <laughs> you, you just, you just want to jump into my first question then since we're going?
1: Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. We're, yeah. We're you know, big start, I can say. Yeah.
2: How did you end up meeting David Koresh, and, and what persuaded you to go to Mount Carmel? Because I know from reading your book, it's it's not it's not exactly like how the uh, the Netflix series portrays.
1: Uh, okay, well, let me ask you. But what do you mean by that? <laughs> <laughs> there was a monastic lifestyle, but there, there wasn't a community there, which was something that was very, very fascinating. So, what's your perception from reading the book and then watching the series? I am um, a little too close, so I'm more interested in how you view that.
2: The 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 series for me personally it left me feeling really upset and very uh very personally very angry with the whole situation on how everything went down.
1: Yeah.
2: And then reading your book, it didn't make me any less angry or any less you know question that final assault and what happened. But it changed the perspective to me because there was things in the show that happened to your Roy Culkin, who played you that didn't have that in real life, it happened to like multiple people or other people, you know, things like that. So I like reading your book really, I actually think it's in my opinion, I'm glad I watched the show first and then read your book after, because I had all the feelings that I had about, about the subject and then reading your book kind of, you know, opened it up to like, okay, so here's what happened and things like that. Oh, that's
1: fascinating. I don't know. I appreciate that insight very much. So like, I guess, so, what do you think the major difference was? I mean, why I tried to figure out why 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 there was a why there was such a difference. Well, I know why there was such a difference. It just seems like you were a little less angry reading the book. <laughs> uh,
2: no, it, not not less angry reading the book. I think I was more interested to see. Uh, it, it was more interesting from your point of view, I guess, versus the dramatization of things and the things that okay. the, the the things that didn't happen the way the show portrayed it, they still happen, but it didn't happen to you exactly, or it happened to multiple people, things like that. You know, there was those slight that's changes. Um, but I mean, I think it's all, it's all really the same story at the end of the day.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, and that's, the thing about, that's the thing about it. I, I like the way you actually put that the thing with the series, you know, different with, with the characters and everything. That's, uh, that's, that's, that's one of the things that they do. You know, they have to dramatize it. Where, right. When where, where you're telling the story, which I told 40 years ago in the book, that's really more of what it was really like than what really happened. So I, I guess the part that bothers is I don't want people, I don't like the idea, well, people are going to do this because that's what people do. But I don't like the idea of people seeing the series and then reading the book and then being disappointed because the series was not exactly like the book. creative vision of the filmmaker and I respect the creative vision of the filmmaker and I know in trying to edit a book myself how hard it is to leave stuff out and put stuff in And and, I I, I personally, it drives me so crazy, I usually have to have help with those decisions. I respect for the filmmaker, but I feel bad that people will feel maybe misled by seeing the series and reading the book. So I just want to tell people and I do make this point quite a bit the series is great it's a, um, it's a work of fiction that's based on historical facts. The book is my experience. So the book is going to be more accurate as to what I've actually experienced. So I don't really want anyone to feel like they, they were deceived. You know, it's it's this is not, the, the series is not a documentary. It was not a docudrama. It was a series. Uh, I want to do a docudrama and I want to, not a docudrama, let me take that back. I want to do a proper docu-series. Where there's lots of time to answer all the questions, and talk to people on both sides of the fence, and you know, really get to the bottom of some of the issues, like the who fired first issue, we can pretty much settle that. The ATF is just was just wrong, and their assessment they just they just straight up lied. But the fire, there's still a lot of controversy. Right. Started the fire, how the fire started, we know for a fact, okay, that the FBI had pyrotechnic devices that were found at the scene of the crime, six different pyrotechnics that were mislabeled as silent. You can't get around that fact. You FBI through the media said that there were no pyrotechnic devices used. The people inside started the fire because it was a mass suicide. We have infrared video that shows people being shot trying to escape. There are shooters next to the tank, with fully automatic weapons shooting into the back of the building where there was a media blackout. You can't deny it. It's well, the government can. They say it's sunlight reflection. But anyone, anyone that looks looks at that tape. Can tell that that's Pilato but that is not sunlight reflection uh, there was some kind of gun battle going on behind Mount Carmel we got two explosions in the gym area as the dog run of the gym very bright white lights that come up on the spread okay so these are facts these are facts that nobody talks about these are facts you'll never see NBC ABC or CBS even talk about it's so radical that they just say it's conspiratorial all that's conspiratorial stuff and by putting it in that one giant denominator conspiratorial they turn people off looking into it further and the truth is this evidence exists period end of story now let me try to be somewhat balanced which is not easy being a survivor we got people like graham craddock the guy from australia who said that he heard people on the other side of the building or whatnot say pour some fuel start okay start a fire but not inside start it outside so what does that mean it was there in my theory is that tanks were coming into the building. We know that. Is somebody on the other side of the building or someone was out of my eyesight, throw a Molotov cocktail in a tank to try to keep it back? I don't know. I didn't see that. Okay? But that's what somebody has said. Nobody in the section of the building that I was in saw any of that. So, you know, there's... You know, what, what can I say, man? There's, there's evidence on both sides of the equation. But I can't believe something I didn't see. You know, when you tell me that people inside started the fire and it was mass suicide... I say, well, then, how come I'm here, and how come there's nine other people that survived? that all came out of the side, of the front of the building. How come there's autopsy reports that have people with gunshot wounds in the center of the head and the center of their chest? That's not suicide. That's 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 more like homicide. So when Bill Clinton waves his finger and gets up there and he says to the American public, "If a bunch of religious fanatics want to kill themselves, what can the federal government do about it?" And that's the final word word on it. And after that, it was over. So you know, I was from. For, from forever on I was a cult member that was too afraid to kill myself. Okay? That's what people believed about, even though it was a mass homicide, not a mass suicide. So whew, that being said, where do you go from there, man? <laughs> you know, where do you go from there? It's uh, it's it's you just tell the story little by little and you wait for it to become all this. There's no one more surprised at the attention than me, believe believe it or not. But there's unanswered questions, they need to be answered, we need to do it right and thorough, and we need to not be afraid to get those truths out there. I don't know if I work with a major company. Are they going to want to not show the infrared video? Are they going to not want to do that? Because they're tied in with, everyone's tied in with their government. So that's how the government wins. They put pressure on people. That's why you didn't hear from the ACLU, and you didn't hear from any of the, you know, you didn't hear of any of the organizations that are there to help protect constitutional rights. Because those very organizations, the organizations that help protect constitutional rights, are funded by by government grants. Many of them get a lot of money from the government. And if you got a video that shows people on the government side shooting at innocent people trying to escape, well, then you get some problems, don't you? So who's going to want to deal with that? Not many.
2: While we're talking so, about know, this, because it just hit, it just hit it just because we just did Waco Part Two, we just recorded it the other night, um, and by the time this comes out, it'll have been released, but. In the quote-unquote official timeline of things, I I read that at 8:24 a.m. the pilot flying above while the assault was going on said to cut the cut communications, and then the timeline that I read doesn't come back on until 9 a.m. Do, do you have any insight? Is that is that when the the flashes are seen going on outside, or do you have any input? No, on? I
1: believe the, I don't. I believe the flashes are much later. Okay. And I don't know if that is a thing, because why, why that early would that be a thing? The fire didn't start until 12. Right. You know, that's one of the other problems that I have. They say that they have audio tapes, right? Well, number one, we knew that every time they sent in a gallon of milk or they sent in a container or whatever, that it was bugs. We actually put all the bugs in one specific room in a closet. Um. You know, I mean, they were pretty easy to see. It's not like we didn't know that they were going to try something like that. So they were all in a closet. And so what bugs that are the FDA talking about when they said that they have audio cases, people saying you start a fire. I have a, a huge problem with that. Now, did, was there some uh, uh, special forces guys for people that crawled under the house and put bugs in? That's possible. I don't know. They haven't clarified what bugs they're talking about. And the other issue I have is that the government said that the bugs that say pour the fuel, spread them there, put them there, but all those occurred at six A. M. That's six hours before the fire. So they're own by their own testimony you know they say that at six AM someone said, Start a fire, start the fire. If someone said start the fire, why did it take six hours for the fire to start? I'm just saying, man, it doesn't make sense. Right. And then when they when Congress asked the FBI excuse me, please I'm for some reason. When Congress asked the FBI where's the uh, you know, why, if you knew that they were going to react at the place of fire, why would you go forward with the, with the CS gas attack? And they said, terminal, they said, we didn't think that they were going to do that. If we would have thought we were, they were going to do that, uh, we would never have gone forward with a CS gas attack. But we couldn't hear the tapes. We had to take them back to Quantico and have them scrub, meaning they had to enhance the tape. The word "scrubbed" is very interesting. Anybody ever saw a movie called... Uh, I'm sure, I love this movie too. It was excellent, very well done. Called Primary Colors, it was about Bill Clinton's run for office back when he was in a uh, uh, governor of Arkansas. And there's a scene in there where they take tapes and they mash them together, a phone conversation, to make somebody say. And they use uh, Larry King as an example to make someone say something that they never said. They made it look like Larry was soliciting soliciting a prostitute. Very interesting. So. Here's my point. We know that that's possible. My other point is, we know that they had their tapes back in their lab to quote-unquote scrub them. The word scrub, to me, is a huge red flag. Okay, so what's my point? My point is, the fire happened six hours, six hours after, the FBI tapes claims that someone said start the fire. That's ridiculous. And you know what? Anyone who has heard those tapes, myself, Kathy Schroeder, um, when I played them at the grand jury, they gave us a script. And the script said what they wanted you to hear on the tape. And when it got to the point where it said, start the fire, I asked them to play it five or six times with my eyes closed, and all I could hear was, cut the power. Now, now I don't know why someone would be saying, cut the power. Were they talking about the generators? I don't know. The point is, nope, they did not say, start the fire. Yet, that's what it was interpreted as, a start the fire. And, you know, that's a very vivid memory, because the grand jury was not, front from the grand jury was not fun in front of many people who are looking at you like you're the craziest thing they've ever seen, and all the questions are stemmed from that. How could you be involved in such a group? How this? did, you know, I, the, whole, the whole grand jury process is just to make you feel like a piece of crap. They didn't want to get to the truth of things. Oh, it's just been, anyway, that was a bad day. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't enjoy that day. But I, I think I've made my point, and that's, that's, that's just it. There's point. Every time they do a documentary, they leave you with the conclusion they want to leave the audience with. But I tell you, just about every point they make can be countered. There is a logical counter to every point the government makes, but our side's never allowed to make that point ever. And how do we make the point? Through podcasts, through writing a book, The days, weeks, months, and years it takes for it to reach a mass consciousness level when you do not control the press and the media. That's how you make your point. So, let me segue into this. <laughs> so what can, I, what can we do about that? Nothing. But what did I do about it? I made sure that the government was not allowed to rewrite history the way they wanted it rewritten. We all know that history is written by the victors. out in this case, now, they may have gotten away from prosecution. They may have gotten away from public opinion being so angry with them after gassing children to death that they got to survive and get their pensions and live their their, their precious lives. You know, going to take the kids to Disneyland every year, whatever the hell these people that control the the press and lie to the American public do with their spare time. But guess what they didn't get to do? They didn't get to change history. It's taken twenty seven years, but they're not gonna change history. Okay? Um they can I could die tomorrow. They literally they could take me out, I could have a heart attack, it doesn't matter. It's done. I written the book, the series is out, the damage is done, okay, whatever. Um That's it. That's my role. I just wanted to make sure they didn't rewrite history. I did not think it would get to be this. You know, I thought there would be a little thing, a little blurb in American history, and maybe 200 years down the road, someone would accidentally find my book and go, oh, that's interesting. But I'm glad. You know, my dad's a history teacher. History is important. Understanding the past is important, even if most people today don't think that it is.
2: Right. Yeah, for sure. And
1: uh, that's incredibly important. And so that's it. Uh, I, I don't know what more I, I can add. <laughs> um, they're they're not going to be able to rewrite history. There's it's too late for them. So na 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 na.
2: You know what really <laughs> stuck anyway, out sorry. to me? No, 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 no problem. That's um my, yeah, that's just... my weird humor, man. <laughs> the one the one thing that stuck out to me with the government trying to push the idea uh, that the tapes say that you guys started <laughs> the fire was when there's things like it took them six years to admit that there, that pyrotechnic devices were used. And then I think it was Times uh, came out with an article or maybe the New York Times um, that over a hundred agents knew about those pyrotechnic devices, but no one said anything for, for the six years. And then that paper, with permission, you know, acknowledging that, was absent from the, the 1994 congressional investigation. Those are the kind of things that it's like, well, how are how are how is anybody supposed to believe what you're saying at that point, you know, towards the government? How is anybody supposed to believe what the government's saying? Because those little facts make it seem like there's a huge cover up.
1: Okay. Wow, I gotta tell you, buddy, I hadn't read that. <laughs> I hadn't read everything. I did not know that over a hundred different agents knew of the pyrotechnic devices well, you told me that just now. I think it was so I think it was
2: uh, yeah, you know Can what you I'll send you a link that article. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I'll get you a link to it. But that's what uh, yeah, I think it was the New York Times reported it back in uh, I can't remember the year, but I'll uh, but yeah, for sure, I'll send that's you the link to it. But yeah, was well, someone? It was a. Yeah, reti- that's it was a retired uh, FBI agent said that over he knew of over a hundred people that knew about the pyrotechnic devices, but never spoke up until '99.
1: and that's what I'm talking about, folks. That's the kind of crap. I'm talking about right there. It's unbelievable. Shame on them. Shame on them. Shame on them all. Seriously. Look, I know you want to protect your organization, but you got a lot of dead kids here. Dang. i got to tell you, man. That actually really pisses me off. But that's what I'm talking about. That's that fucking thin, fucking blue line, dude, that gets people killed and destroys our Constitution and destroys our rights. I
2: mean, all right, man. How much? How much of that is? This, is, was this it,
1: is the kind of shit, dude. This is the kind of shit I'm talking about. It just goes on and, and on, and I, know. I can't believe I've never read that article.
2: Yeah, I'll send it. To, I'll send it over to you when, <coughs> when we get off here. Uh, it's 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 pretty eye opening. It's it's crazy. I, I mean, is, oh, that, is, is that is that did that have a lot to go into why you guys stayed in for the 51 days? Like how how things were going? Because absolutely. I mean, that's a huge criticism. That's like a huge criticism that you hear when, like, if if I go out, like, somebody that hasn't read about your situation and stuff, a lot of people are like, well, this would have never happened if they would have just came out. You know, like, what do you say to people that have that mindset?
1: Yeah, buddy, I don't know. (laughs) You know? Hold on. I'm sorry. I kind of do know. You know, everything they did was, it it appeared to us that they wanted us to stay in the building, including when people would go out there with flashbang grenades at us. Uh, You know, there's so point by point. There's so many points to show that they wanted people to stay in the building, Um, mooning us, giving us the finger. The helicopters buzzing the building, and even Gary Nesner said when he found out that two of the agents were bragging about pilots were bragging about buzzing the building. He goes, "What do you What do you mean you're buzzing the building? Yeah, we're buzzing the building. You know, trying to amp up the pressure a bit." And he's like, "Don't don't think, don't do that. Why would you do that?" You know, we're trying to work with these people get them to come out and you're buzzing their building with helicopters that's, no don't do it and that's you know things like that more importantly have you heard of Stuart Wright or read any of his work works that he has done on the subject
2: no I have not
1: Stuart Wright and I will send you some links Stuart Wright is a, uh, a professor he teaches in uh, Beaumont Texas University level and he did a exhaustive critical analysis of the government actions at Waco. And one of the things he thought he had several, several different articles and papers on it, many, many amazing stuff. Everything he writes is just really incredible, including a synopsis of of the trials and how injustice was thwarted in a few of the trials. But he did a paper on, it, it almost seemed like the FBI needed a rule book to deal with a crisis situation like this, what they call the hostage situation. Well, not a hostage situation. But when you're dealing with, with a crisis where people are involved in lives are at stake, there actually is a rule book the FBI developed, okay, of what you do if you want people to come out. They violated 12 of their own principles. So 12, and he goes through them principle by principle and shows you exactly how they violated them. So it seems like the FBI not only wanted people to stay in, but they wanted people to stay in so bad they read their own rule book and then threw it away and said, we're going to do the opposite. This says it'll work. I don't believe it. Let's do the opposite. <laughs>
2: do you think it was just the negotiator, like just this like complete rift between the, the negotiators and like the tactical guys?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think the, the negotiators wanted to do their jobs, and the tactical guys wanted to do their jobs. You know, they have helicopters, man. They got tanks. When's the last time the FBI guy gets to play with a tank? It's probably never. Right, It's not happened before. So, you know, they're doing their jobs as if they've invaded another country. And if you're going to invade countries, that's what your military is supposed to do. We shouldn't be invading other countries. We're supposed to be an example to the world instead of being the bullies of the world. But that's neither here nor there. Let's say that we are speaking militaristically. There's the prime example of why you don't want your federal government, your federal law enforcement officials, or even your local officers Enforcement officials to be militarized and to have a militarized, a militarized kind of mindset, because people are going to get killed. That's the purpose of the military. That's not the purpose of law enforcement. The purpose of law enforcement is to protect and serve. It's to save lives. You got someone that's a little off his rocker and goes into a store with a gun. You know that you want your law enforcement person to be there to deal with the situation. Domestic abuse. If you had a law enforcement person that's smart and has studied some psychology, he can get into a domestic dispute and he can de escalate the situation as opposed to getting some guy who barely graduated high school with no further education and giving him a gun and giving him a job as a cop and say, okay, now go deal with this. So, where's the proper training? How come I think every cop should have psychology classes? You should be able to go in and, and, and serve your community and de-escalate situations instead of ramping them up and making them deadly. Yeah, Waco's a prime example of that. You know, when I read short Wright's writings and I find that they violated 12, 11 or twelve of their own principles about what you do. That's insane. That's either incredible That's either that's the word I'm looking for. It's either incredibly naive or it's incredibly devious, or maybe it's a little. Maybe it's a little of both.
2: Yeah, that's an interesting. That's an interesting take on that. I wonder how much think, of that uh, went each way with some of those guys.
1: Well, yeah, you know, a space that David wasn't easy to deal with on some occasions. But David got increasingly upset and increasingly paranoid because of the actions of the tactical commanders. I mean, when when a negotiator promises you something and then and then they do the exact opposite, they meaning the tactical commanders, it's that you blame the person that you're talking to. You blame the person that has promised it to you so that's got to be very frustrating for the negotiators
2: yeah exactly
1: because they're they're being undermined at every point and what's happening on the inside is is the people that are watching this happen are becoming more and more convinced that we're on the right path that these people are liars that these people are the goats if you want to look at it from a scriptural point of view people that fight against the people of god are very proud and arrogant and they are there to destroy the word of God. They are there to destroy the messenger and the followers of the message. The message—that's what they're there for. That's that's scriptural. I mean, that's thousands of years. That's been going on. The Jews that that held up at Masada in 70 A.D. They believed God was on their side. The Romans were going to be defeated. God was going to come down and save them. God didn't. The Romans got in. They ended up. The Jews ended up taking their own lives rather than rather than give the victory to the Romans. So that's after three years of being holed up in a mountain palace, here it's mountain palace. Uh, it's an amazing story, Ms. Adam. But the point is the same. The people on the inside that are being victimized feel like they are the people of God, like they're the humble and, constri- and contrite spirits. And if the individuals outside are the ultimately pride and arrogant. They are they are the spirit of the world. They are the spirit that will just dis- try to destroy spirit of good, spirit of God. And that's what the FBI agents manifest in daily, ultimate pride and arrogance. They did not come off like they were good guys. They came off like they were arrogant crits, there to there to do a job and to, and to and to kill us. So they wonder why people didn't come out. Nobody is going to want to come out to an oppressive force like that who is fulfilling your worldview for you. That's they did. They fulfilled the worldview of the people at Mount Carmel that believed in the scripture. You know, they made it come to pass. Now it's like it's like they read David's message and said, "Oh." let's make this come to pass for this guy
2: yeah you know I was listening to uh, I listened to a couple other interviews you did with other people actually to to prepare to, to talk to you and there was something interesting you said that um you in one of them you recalled sitting on the roof with David talking about tanks coming and you said something along the lines of like <laughs> no way that's ever gonna happen and then it kind of came it it came true with how how this went down I mean how that that had to be a powerful feeling for everybody inside there when that's all coming true, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. You know, David said, what are you going to do, Tim? So there's tanks running up and down the double-E ranch road. Yeah, yeah I was it said, said, Dave, there's no way they're going to bring tanks onto this property. That's that just never happened. That's not what America does. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, was I wrong. You know, three months later, or I can't remember, it three or six months or somewhere in there. You know, next thing I know, I'm watching tanks run up and down the double-E ranch road, and I'm like, what the heck is going on there? I couldn't believe it. it stunning. So, you know these are all factors for sure yeah it's uh you know David said it and it came to pass but you're not talking about a people that study the scriptures and live in that world and that's a very different world to live in that's not like I don't know man it's like going back in time very much so when you when you really study scripture, scripture, and want to get to know it and the only reason I wanted to get to know it I mean I was a very worldly kind of guy I just knew that that book had a lot of power and that that book been used for years to control people and to fight people and the people had died for it and believed in it and I wondered what the power was why why is there a power to the book? what does it really say that it's worth dying for well I, you know I didn't. I you know I didn't go into this thinking that I was looking for a truth to die for okay but I wondered why what what I wondered what it said that could bring men believe in it that much, where they were willing to die for God. And that's, that's why I wanted to know it in the first place, not because I felt like I needed to be a better person. I was a good person, but I had you know, I was having a blast being in a rock band. and with all of the stuff that comes with that, you know. I didn't want to be a holy roller, man. I didn't want to, you know, not go out and drink and chase girls. I wasn't in plan. Uh, you know, it just kind of happened. It just kind of just I started to see things in the world differently. And That was another thing that was really interesting. Is once you started, once I started to study the scripture and I started to see it life in a different way. I literally saw things in a different way. I would walk into a, a toy store. I would walk into a let's say a Walmart or something. I would look at the toys. I would notice that a lot of toys are geared to, are, are especially for young boys <laughs> are built around war. There's guns. There's Nerf guns. There's uh, you can buy helicopters. GI. I was at a G.I. Joe when I was a kid. I remember that very distinctly. But I started to see things a little different. It's like, why so many toys geared around war? Are we trying to tell our kids something? Are we trying to get them to believe in something? When I was young, we, were, we, were, we had to say the Pledge of Allegiance every day. I don't, I'm sure they don't do that in school anymore. But when I was in school, we had to say the Pledge of Allegiance today. And, you know, I had to stop and think about the Pledge of Allegiance. What it says, I of allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. One nation under God, indivisible, for liberty and justice for all. You know, I mean, when you think of the Pledge of Allegiance, you're you're pledging yourself to a nationalistic viewpoint and to serving that government under God no matter what. And it's just like, you know, it was something you did. It was very patriotic, you know, Um, I am committed to this country. You know, I love this country. That's why I talk the way I do about it because I want it to change for the better. But the point is, in setting the script, though, I started to see everything a little bit differently. I, st- I started to see why toys are geared toward war. I started to see why every day they want you to say the Pledge of Allegiance. Like, you know, they want you to be involved in this when, 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 when duty gets, when duty calls. They want you to come and not think about it. Just follow orders and do whatever they say. And that's been a big problem with just about all the wars. We think of World War Two. The Japanese bombed at Pearl Harbor. Okay. Everybody signed up. Every just about every able bodied American male signed up for that righteous cause to go and fight Hitler and go and fight the Japanese because they attacked us. And it was a sneak attack, it was terrible, and it was evil and it was wrong. And, you know, we're gonna get you back to killing our countrymen. Totally get that. That's great. But then There was a war called Korea, which wasn't a war. It was a police action. And there was another police action called Vietnam. And then all of a sudden, Americans started to become very disillusioned with war and with the government's reasons for being in those wars. You know, the Pentagon Papers. The Pentagon Papers came out that basically stated that the Vietnam War was unwinnable. And that people that are in the know knew that the Vietnam War was unwinnable. And instead of pulling out, they doubled down. And they sent even more Americans kids to go and die for nothing literally to go and die for no reason whatsoever for an unwinnable war so instead of just saying okay you know we were wrong we're gonna pull out we stayed in the war for years and years and years that's the kind of arrogance i'm talking about that's the kind of arrogance that the scripture shines the light on that kind of arrogance where you will send thousands of kids to their deaths knowing there's no way they can win excuse me but screw you and I hope there's a very, very, very hot area in hell for individuals that make those decisions to send those kids to their graves because that is not what America is supposed to be about. It's absolutely disgusting. And that's why when you talk to a lot of servicemen that have been in war, they're very disillusioned with their country because their country has lied to them. They're there for the wrong reasons. They don't figure it out until they're there. And it's just heartbreaking. And it's heartbreaking when we get servicemen that come back they come back from having a purpose, which is to save their fellow Americans, to save their, their members. They come back here after doing their duty and doing their job, and they can't handle it. They either go back or a lot of them choose suicide because they went from having an incredible purpose. And it's not even the purpose of America at that point. It's the purpose of that guy that's next to you in the foxhole. Your buddy that puts his life on the line for you, so you put your life on the line for them. They come back, and they're just, it's, it's, it's the that You can handle it. I think about those people all the time. I spend a lot of time thinking about people, like, and it's just like I just wish they could get through it and just enjoy what they've earned, enjoy the good aspects of America. But once you know, man, once that veil is released from your eyes and you see things differently, it's really hard to go back. But yeah, it's it, it, sometimes it's so overwhelming. It's hard to find the joy in life because you've seen so many horrible and horrendous things. So really, all I can do all I could do is continue to expand on the point I think the point's been made right
2: so so you would say that your your time with the branch Davidians and stuff that that it was a good experience then like you you learned things that that helped you out in life it sounds like
1: oh yeah, I would say it was a good experience Here, here's how I say it okay and uh, yeah this, this this is this is it this is my experience in a nutshell is I would I David Thibodeau, would not wish my experience on my worst enemy. The person that I dislike the most in this world—I try not to hate anyone—but the person that I dislike the most in this world, I would not want them to go through what I went through. But at the same time, because I've gone through what I've gone through, I went—I've gone through—I wouldn't trade my experience for all the money that you could give me. I wouldn't give it up for anything. That experience was meant for me. It's my purpose. It's—it's not the purpose I thought that I had when I first started out with life, but it certainly has become a purpose. And if it can help, you know, even just one person that maybe doesn't feel that they're worthy or doesn't feel that they can go on because they were abused or molested or they have a parent died from cancer and they feel hopeless, maybe they can look at my story and say, wow, okay, you know, I can do it. That's great. One person. That it's all been worth it. That's how I feel about it.
2: Yeah, that's a that's an awesome outlook on everything after your story.
1: Well, it's taken years. Yeah. <laughs> it's taken <laughs> It's it's taken a lot of angry, angry, angry uh, uh, conversations with God, a lot of tears, a lot of despondency, a lot of alcohol (laughs) (laughs) to get to certain spaces where I was able and willing to accept certain things. Uh, It's not been an easy road, but it's been a necessary one. Right. And other people people that are maybe, you know, in a, a drug and or alcohol dependency, it feels like there's absolutely... No place to go. There is. There's a place to go. That's awkward. and you just got to get to the point, man. If you're listening, where you want your soul back, and you say, "Okay, I want my soul back. I, I screwed up. I'm sorry, God. Help me out here, will you?" And you got to get rid of all your negative influences. And you either have to move, go home, do whatever you got to do to get all those negative influences out of your life and start it all over, dude. Just just look to a higher power and say, "Yep, I can do it." And you can. You just that's what it was for me. I wanted my soul back. I wanted I, I wanted to stop giving up the power that that, that I was giving with my experience. And that's what I did. I hid from it. I ran from it. I gave up my power for years. Look it's I don't I don't I think I, I think that had to happen. I don't think I would be here. I don't think I could deal with this. I couldn't deal with the thousands of people that I'm hearing from every day wanting to tell me their life stories, uh, because now it's on Netflix and millions of people have seen the story. I couldn't have dealt with that back then. No way. So I had to go through a whole rasher of shit to be here and be able to have that outlook that you say, is you know, a positive outlook. It wasn't easy. It's a lifetime of experience to have that outlook. But it's the truth. You know, we are all of the same species. Doesn't matter what color you are, we are the same species. If you marry outside of your race, guess what? You're not marrying a fish. You're marrying a person. It doesn't matter. Race doesn't matter. <laughs> it just doesn't matter. And Look at all the tribal bullshit that we have Looking Like, look at the Jews and the Palestinians can't work it out. It's like nobody, nobody's got an answer to that information to, to that problem because it's so tribal. And it stems back so many thousands of years. You killed my cousin, so I'm going to kill you. And then the the circle goes on and on and on and on and on and on and that's what honestly that's what I see in law enforcement you know I don't want that circle to go on you know we're supposed to love your friggin neighbor man not shoot him so that's uh, how's
2: that yeah that, man this it super powerful stuff
1: I think I get lucky once in a while but <laughs> I could have done this last night <laughs> <laughs> when we talked last night we were gonna do this interview last night I'm like dude I had a crazy day i just like ah, we gotta do it you know we gotta do this interview tomorrow <laughs> it won't be any good. That was right. It was a good call. Thanks for working me with me on that. I appreciate
2: it. Yeah, no problem, man. Um, I I think that takes. I, I don't have any other questions on my list. That that knocked them all out.
1: Good. So I can go have more coffee now. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I
2: I appreciate you doing this with me, man. This was uh, I actually like sure. this way better because this this wasn't even an interview. This was like a conversation. This was really cool. Yeah.
1: It was nice. I, I enjoyed it. Hey, can we talk about, uh, real briefly before we go, about some of the things that are going on in Mount Carmel on my website?
2: Yeah, for sure. Sure.
1: Well, um, I've been, okay, I'm in Waco. <laughs> I'm from Maine. I sold my drum set in Maine. I got an apartment in Maine. I've been here for almost a year in Waco. And I came down to start giving talks to some of the people that are going up to Mount Carmel because of the series. And they wanted to talk to, you know, a survivor. Heather Jones, one of the nine-year-olds that came out during the siege, she was living on the property for a while. Well, there's a guy that's running the property, and he's uh, he's uh, an older guy. He's in a, in a wheelchair. He's claiming that he's, he's the preacher out there, that he's the next inspired one. The problem is nobody. Um, he doesn't have a following because nobody believes the scripture. Now, this guy used to study under Lois Road, and he followed George Road, Lois Road. I'm not going to get into that history because that's a, a just crazy. You guys looked that up. Really weird stuff. But to make a long story short, when David Chris took over the group, this guy Charlie stayed with George. Uh, George picked him out. And he had to leave the property. So after all of this happened, Charlie came back onto the property. And, and, and Clive, who was one of the survivors, agreed to let Charlie stay on the property. It was actually Maribel Jones. So Charlie's been living out on the property for over you know, 20 years or so now. He's just living out there. Uh, we didn't let him. And he, by being a very uh, hard person to get along with, he is, uh, most people can't deal with him, but they, they end up leaving. He got to the point where he asked me to leave, when I was out there talking to people. A lot of people were coming up there to speak to me, and I don't think he liked it. He didn't have the attention. So he asked me to leave from the place that I was living in, which was a, a house that was on the property. And he said, I didn't have to leave. He didn't technically kick me off the land, but he said that, uh... He needed the space there for a Holy Spirit structure, which is ridiculous. It was not a Holy Spirit structure. He did nothing with it. The point is, he wanted me to live in a tent or something in the 100-degree in the weather. I'm a pretty big guy. I don't think I would have lasted more than two weeks. So I was forced to leave the property. And then basically Heather Jones, who was nine, when all this happened, lost her father, David Jones. Her grandfather, Perry Jones, lost. David Koresh was her uncle. So all of David Koresh's kids were her cousins. She lost over 13 family members. And she couldn't deal with the pressure Charlie was putting on her, so she and her family left. So this guy is now out there. People are coming from all over the country to see the property, to see where everything happened. And the only person have to hear from is this guy, Charlie, who was claiming he is a survivor. He is not a survivor. He was not there. He did not go through any of this. He's just basically been living on the land. But not only is he claiming he's a survivor, here's the worst part. He's taking money. He's asking for donations on behalf of the survivors. And so what I tell people is I say, please respect the property and don't cause any violence or bodily harm to Charlie. Go out there, enjoy the property, you know, get, get the feel of, you know, a place where so many people lost their lives. But if you donate to Charlie Case, who's living on the property, just know that none of the survivors actually get a cent from it. That all goes to Charlie and his family. Mm-hmm. Give a cent to any of the survivors. So that's what is, you know, so... Here's my long story short, which and uh, I just made it a very long story. Sorry about that, guys. But the bottom line is I started the Mount Carmel Historical and Preservation Fund. And at this point, I need to hire an, a, a real estate attorney to see who actually owns the property. It's supposed to be owned by the church, not by one individual. I need to be able to, to fight him on this. And then I need to be able to see if I can get some kind of uh, cease and desist on calling himself survivor and accepting donations on behalf of survivors so there's a lot of work that needs to be done um i want the land to be a historical site i want it to be protected and i want it to become a museum where people can get righteous information and not information from a person that i think is a bit out of touch with reality and these are all things that i would say to charlie's face so that being said my website i started the website wakosurvivors.com www.wegoSurvivorsplural.com, and at that site we have a lot of uh, rare fo- uh, photos up. We have interviews with survivors. There's, um, uh, we're going to have some documents, documentations I'm trying to. It's growing every day this website. But there's a place where you can order a book directly from me. I sign every copy that is bought off the website. But more importantly than buying anything from me or having a signed copy of my book it is the Mount Carmel Historical Center. Uh, the fund the fund is going toward fighting this very real fight to make it a historical place and not in the hands of one person. So we need a lot of help with that. So anyone, if you can give five bucks, if everyone gave five bucks, I'd be able to fight this thing. Uh, you know, If you don't have a lot, or I don't have anything, I know a lot of people lost their job, I absolutely understand that man. you know, just uh, your good wishes are, are, are enough. But if you're in a position where you can help a little, we'd greatly appreciate the help.
2: Yeah, and I'll put a link to the website in the uh, in the show description when I post this, so then so then everybody can head over there and just just get it right Great. from the description.
1: Great, thanks a lot. It's really a big help.
2: I might have to hit up one of those signed books too on the store. <laughs> <laughs> sure.
1: Yeah, I, I have some of the documentaries too. The Rules of Engagement. There's several really really good documentaries on the subject. That, but if you don't you know if people really want to know what happened, the, the the Rules of Engagement was great documentary. It's nominated for an Oscar. But it's phenomenal. Uh, that's a good way. That's a good start for those that like the visual or some of the documentaries. I have those copies of those available too.
2: Awesome. Well, Hey man, I really appreciate you doing this. This was uh this was super fun and I feel like we Thanks got a lot of good, Yeah, we got a lot of good information in here, man. It's awesome to hear it from, from someone's, uh, from someone who lived it to, you know, point of view.
1: Thanks man. I appreciate that.